Hello and welcome to Nudge, the Consumer Psychology Podcast. Now, if you joined us a few weeks back for our previous episode, you will remember April Dunford, the positioning expert, talking through why so many marketers suck at positioning. Well, in today's episode, we'll be covering the solution. April will talk through her tips to nail positioning and messaging. In fact, we'll cover how to identify who your real competitors are, tips for picking the right target market, and examples of successful positioning pivots. April has spent the last 25 years in senior marketing roles learning the art of positioning. Her best-selling book, Obviously Awesome, is really seen as the positioning bible for many marketers, including myself, and her five-step strategy for effective positioning is what we'll talk through today. The first step in the strategy is to understand your competitive alternatives. To ask yourself, what would customers use if your product didn't exist? Here's April explaining why understanding the competitive landscape to begin with is so, so important. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com slash service to do more for your customers today. There's two main mistakes I see people make when they're thinking about competitive alternatives. So The first one, and this is very common in startups in particular, the first one is they don't necessarily think of status quo as a competitor. So uh, they'll be very focused on other little companies that do something that's just like them. And it gets exacerbated by if you're out fundraising, the VCs are very concerned about every little company on the planet that might do the thing that's just like what you do. And so you end up talking a lot about these little companies that in fact are not competitors, really. They're At least they're not in the sense of your customers don't know them. They never end up in a short list. You never lose a deal to them. And often your biggest competitor, if you're doing something really innovative, is whatever the customer is doing right now that accomplishes the job that they would use your product for. 
and, and quite often that's, I'm going to do it with a spreadsheet or like a B2B software. We're almost always replacing Excel. Excel plus the manual processes, um, Excel plus the intern. <laughs> like, like most of my career, I've been selling against Excel plus the intern, or let's let the IT department build some stuff themselves. Like that's in B2B software in startups, where those are often our main competitors. The first mistake that I see people make is, you, you know, they're, they're leaving out status quo. And so because they leave that out, they often end up going down a path where their positioning ends up focusing on a differentiator that is irrelevant to the customer. So they'll say, oh, you know, my competitor, all these little, all these little companies and my thing's better because it's so easy to use. Like if you look at theirs, they take 14 clicks to do a thing and my thing, it only takes one click to do a thing. But then if you actually look at customers and deals you say have you ever lost a deal to any of these little guys that you're talking about and they'll say no and i'll say well what would the customer be doing if you didn't exist and they'll say things like oh they just hired an intern and you're like okay so here's you all over your website and everywhere else saying you should pick us because of ease of use but but i'm a customer and i've already got joey And Joey, he's pretty easy to use. Like, I'm just like, hey, Joey, get me a coffee, fill out the spreadsheet, and we're done. That's pretty easy. So you're not easier to use than Joey. And so you've got this whole positioning around this thing that the, the customer's like, no, that, that actually, you don't win there. And meanwhile, there's all these other things that you're way better than the intern at, right? Like the intern quits on you. The, the, the intern can't do advanced math. <laughs> the intern doesn't know all about the customer's profile and have access to a database that can do all this, you know, cool predictive stuff or whatever your product does. Um, and, and you should actually be talking about that if you want to get them to stop doing it with Joey and start doing it with you. Now, we've spoken on the show about how consumers will anchor your product against other options. For example, a £4 brownie might look expensive on its own, but next to a £6 slice of cake, it'll look cheap. Marketers who struggle with positioning often misidentify the anchors your customers are really comparing you with. A classic, probably overused example of this is Google versus Ask Jeeves. Now, Google never bothered creating advertising campaigns explaining how fast it was versus Ask Jeeves. They didn't have information on their site which spoke about how the search engine gives better results than the competition because they knew that their real competitor, well, it wasn't Ask Jeeves. Their real competitor was asking your friends or checking the phone book or not bothering to look something up at all. That's one of the reasons why Google focused on making their product as simple to use as possible. They knew their main competitor wasn't Ask Jeeves, it was the people who couldn't be bothered. Anyway, let's head back to April, who goes on to explain the second problem with focusing on the wrong competitors. The second thing is sort of related to that. And, and I see this a lot with, um, you know, where they've got really strong product teams and this is product marketing or product management will go and someone will say, hey, do the competitive analysis. And the smart product manager says, oh, I'm on it. And so they go and they Google that shit and they, you know, and they come up with like, uh, now I got 59 competitors and I got them on a chart and, and I got axes and, uh, you know, and, you know, if I try to successfully position against 59 different 
theoretical competitors because they're not real competitors because we're not actually competing out in the market. It's just maybe we could, right? <laughs> then what's my positioning going to end up? It's, it's going to be mushy as hell. It's just, it's going to be this, it's going to be, I'm trying to position for everything and nothing. It's just going to be bleh. Whereas if you say, well, how are you better than Oracle? Well, now we can get really crisp on that, can't we? Because we know exactly how we're better than Oracle. And all of a sudden my positioning gets really tight. My messaging downstream from that gets really tight. My value propositions are really tight. Now I'm giving the Salesforce ammo that they can use to go win this fight. We're too smart for our own good when it comes to competitive alternatives. And we get, when we're, we, you know, we think we're getting bonus points for completion. When what we really want to know is, you know, if 80% of our deals, we compete with competitor A and competitor B, let's just focus on winning against A and B and we'll worry about C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K later when we actually, when they actually start causing us some pain. It's worth remembering that for the vast majority of products and services, the biggest competitor you will be up against is nothing. If you're a cafe, your competitor probably isn't Starbucks, it's somebody not choosing to get a coffee that day. Marketers who are able to focus their work on the one real competitor they have can much better engage customers than those who try to prove they're better than dozens of potential alternatives. The benefit of this focus is you can start to identify the features and functionality that your products offer that really differentiate you. So to go back to that cafe example, your differentiating feature is probably not that you're tastier than Starbucks. Most customers won't care or even notice that. Instead, it's probably that you've got good Wi-Fi so customers can escape the office or that you're closer to the tube station so it's easier to pick up. Unfortunately, most of us aren't great at highlighting these features that really differentiate us. And here's April explaining why. Well, this is totally it. And and again, it's, you know what you get a lot, particularly at tech companies, you'll get a lot where there'll be a bunch of features that were really, really hard to program. Like they were really hard to build. And then we want to talk about them because we spent a lot of time building it. <laughs> like, you know, it's like we, we, we had all these people working on it for all this time and that should go right in the middle of the homepage, right? Marketing. <laughs> And then, you know, and then sometimes you got to break it to them like, you know what, that just kind of got us up to where everybody else is. And we, it's important. We can't close deals without it, but it's not differentiating. So I can't lead with it. You know, in, there's a difference between what I would call acquisition features and retention features. And so there are some features that are really super important for keeping a customer once you got them. Like a lot of companies will come to me and say, you know why everyone loves us? Everyone loves us because we have the most kick-ass customer support. Like our customer support team's amazing. They're a bunch of super geniuses. You know, we get back to people in 30 seconds. It's amazing, whatever. We should put that in the middle of the homepage because that's why everyone loves us. We do the survey and that's what everyone says they love us. But here's the problem. Everyone says that. (laughs) Everyone. I worked at IBM. We had terrible support. We said that. <laughs> Everyone says that. We all say it. We all say we have amazing customer support. And, and it's impossible to prove. It's one of these things that you you know it when you experience it. And it is very important to, to ensure that a customer doesn't churn on you. But I cannot acquire new customers with that because it's not, it's not differentiating in a provable way. 
And so what I love about doing a structured positioning exercise that starts with competitive comparables is that we basically stick a stake in the ground and say, this is what we got to be, this, this. Now, what do we got that they don't have? And all we're talking about is the differentiating things. And if you come and say, great customer support, I'm like, let's, let's pull up their website. Oh yeah, they say they got that too. How do we prove ours is better? We can't. Okay, well, it doesn't go on the list. Sorry, sorry, right? So now we're making a big list of what, what, what features do we have that are differentiating? Some of that stuff's gonna be table stakes and it doesn't mean that it's not important it, because if we didn't have it, maybe we'd lose a deal. But it, but it also doesn't mean it goes front and center on the homepage. We got to focus on the stuff that makes us different and better and get to the darn point of it. A lot of this comes back to asking your customers the right questions, something we've spoken about a lot previously on the show. Too many marketers ask hypothetical questions to customers that don't often provide reliable results. Questions like, for example, what would you do if we didn't exist? What feature would you love us to build? Or binary yes or no questions like, will you keep using this tool for the foreseeable future? We know customers struggle to answer these. It's really tough to predict what decisions you'll make in the future. So most customers give crappy, unreliable answers here. Instead, asking questions about a customer's previous experience will reveal much better insights. For example, you could ask, can you describe the problem you were trying to solve before buying our product? What made you look for a tool like ours? And at what point did you realize our product was right for you? These questions will reveal the actual features that make you different. It will help you discover what makes you better and actually what convinced your customers to buy. And these types of insights can be the bedrock of great positioning. So all this helps us uncover what our customers care about. But how do we find out which customers to target? See, conventional marketing wisdom will tell us to go after the largest pool of customers, essentially targeting the biggest potential opportunity. But April has a very different approach. She says we should instead target a much smaller audience. Here's why. Again, I spent most of my career in business-to-business software, right? So in business-to-business software, there's a lot of money to be made in in big, big markets where there are sub-segments of those markets that are completely underserved by the leader. And if you're a startup, that's often a very good place to position your product to get your initial traction. Because if you don't get your initial traction, you don't survive long enough to compete with anybody big, (laughs) So you so first you got to figure out how to survive, then you got to worry about how you're going to expand from there. And so if you look at how this actually happens with little companies, the vast majority of successful little companies start out by positioning themselves is in an existing market category that's really easy for customers to understand what it is, except they peeling out a subsegment of that category whose needs are not really being met by the market leader. So that's like going in and saying, you know, instead of trying to say I'm this brand new thing that you've never heard of before, you go in and you say, I'm cola. And you're like, okay, that's like Coke. And you're like, yeah, except I'm cola for dogs. Whoa, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> the dog market is not served by Coke. <laughs> like, and maybe I'm going to dominate the cola for dog market. And how big's that? You know, maybe it's huge. 
And so th this is, I think, if we if we look at the history of successful companies, particularly in Silicon Valley, the, the history of successful tech companies shows us that all of the companies we know started out by be by dominating a little piece of a big big market that already existed and they they weren't they and then eventually they grew up big enough to actually take over the market and so that's why you know that's why we're not using myspace and we're using facebook that's why we're not using ask jeeves we're using google that's why we're not you know that's why nobody knows what creative mp3 players are anymore and and nobody's talking on a blackberry like the history of technology tells us that it is much easier to come into a category that's already created and and because everybody already knows what it's all about and just Get your beachhead established somewhere and then and then work your way out from there. The problem is all too many marketers think that we should come up with a unique category for ourselves. Instead of picking an existing well-defined category that customers know about, marketers often choose to come up with something entirely new. Here's April warning against that approach. And, and, you know, if you read the literature on this, I mean, this is exactly what Jeffrey Moore is talking about in Crossing the Chasm when he talks about bowling pin strategy, right? I'm going to knock over the lead pin market, and then I'm going to get the adjacent pins, then I'm going to get the adjacent pins. We've been talking about this stuff for decades, but I don't know, every, every five or six years, somebody pops up that says, you know what, we should be doing category creation. We should be making up brand new markets. And, and we'll establish this brand new market and then we'll establish ourselves as a leader in it. And th there are always exceptions and there are a handful of examples I can point to of companies that actually, when they were small, set out to do that and eventually became successful and dominated the category. Eloqua is one that I talk about in my book, but they are very much the exception to the rule and not the rule. So if you look at, for example, companies that in the last tech companies in the last five years that have gone IPO, what percentage of those companies position themselves as a niche in an existing big, big market at IPO, at IPO. So hundred million revenue at IPO, 95%. So, and yet we, you know, we got people out there talking about, Oh, you got to create a category and do your own thing and do whatever. And it, it's occasionally that works. Yeah. But it's actually the scariest, riskiest, um, generally least successful way to, to do this thing. <laughs> like if, if you actually wanted to follow the rule, the rule is you figure out a piece that you can absolutely distinguish yourself and dominate. And then once you're there and you own that piece, you look at what's adjacent to that piece and you go get that. And then once you got that, you get to the next adjacent bit and the next adjacent bit until you become big enough to take on the leader because now you're number two. 95% of startups that have IPA'd have positioned themselves within an existing category. It's a really important point to remember. It might be inspirational to attempt to lead your company into a newly defined category to capture large swaths of buyers, but often it doesn't work. Often, it's much smarter to go after a small part of a defined segment. Here's April giving an example of when she did exactly that earlier in her career. So I use this example of this company that I worked at where we were enterprise CRM. And, you know, there was a 
this was way before the Salesforce was still a small company back then. So the king of enterprise CRM was this company Siebel and they were the absolute giant in that market. And so we, we had a special feature, but we didn't understand the value of it. And it took us a while to unlock the idea that the value of it was our ability to model relationships in a different kind of way. And then it was like, well, who cares a lot about that value? And what we discovered was investment bankers care a lot about that value. And so we niched down into this investment banking niche, which totally transformed our ability to differentiate from the, the, the giant in the market, which was Siebel. And we, we did it by kind of just leaning out and saying, they're amazing. We love those guys. They're amazing at everything. They're, you know, they're, there's a reason they're 2 billion revenue is because they're fantastic, but not for you, investment banker, not for you. Everybody else should buy them, but not you. And why? Because you need to model relationships in a different way, and we're going to help you do that. And we were super successful doing that. We managed to raise the price a lot because of that. We got them out of deals early because of that. And the result of that was this really rapid revenue growth. Like we went from 2 million to 70, 80 million in like a year and a half, which is unheard of. But, you know, it's, it's counterintuitive because we feel like, oh, if I narrow this down, there isn't going to be enough market there. And, you know, our board didn't like it when we made that decision. They were like, that's too small. And we didn't invest in you to be this little lifestyle business, you know, and we're not going to be positioned like this forever. That's not how this works, right? We're going to dominate investment banking. And then after we've dominated investment banking, then we're going to go to retail banking. And once we've got retail banking, then we're going to go to insurance. And if we have all of banking and all of insurance, guess what? We're a giant company at that point. Then we're going to take those guys out. Don't worry. Everybody gets caught up in this idea like, oh, well, we're going to say we're this and we'll be stuck there forever. <laughs> and you're not like everybody's positioning is changing all the time. But it, that's normal. That's how stuff works. Your product changes. The customer landscape, the, the competitive landscape changes. Sometimes you have outside forces completely beyond your control, like a global pandemic hits and all your customers' priorities change. And your positioning is not a static thing. It's going to evolve over time. And so if positioning in a small niche market is the easiest, fastest, most efficient way to make your number this year, why wouldn't you do that? April's example is telling. By focusing the CRM's positioning on investment banking, she went against the common wisdom at the time and the demands of her investors. Everybody wanted the company to focus on the largest market possible, but April chose the opposite route. By focusing, she was able to nail the positioning for that specific audience. She focused on the actual competitors in the space, she highlighted the unique features her product had, and the value that they provided to that audience. And this focused approach ultimately grew revenue from 2 to $70 million in just a few years. It's an astonishing result that's not impossible if you correctly position your product. Now, I truly hope you enjoyed this episode of Nudge. I know on the show we often keep it solely to the behavior science space or consumer psychology space, but I couldn't resist sharing these insights from April. They are also vital for marketers to be aware of, and they've helped me tremendously throughout my career. 
I got a lot of value out of reading April's book, obviously awesome, and I'm sure you all will too. So if you'd like to pick up a copy, head to the show notes. I've dropped a link to it in there. And before you leave, I'd like to ask a simple favour. If you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, please, please, please take one minute to leave Nudge a review. Unfortunately, Apple is the real kingpin of podcasts and without Apple's reviews, it'll be really hard for Nudge to grow. So every review there can make a real difference and I read every single one as well. So if you do manage to leave a review, I'll be very, very grateful. Now that's all from me today. Please do tune in next fortnight to listen to the next episode of Nudge.